Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Using them in all the bookkeeping stuff in Russia, and I thought, this is definitely the mark of the beast. <laughs> now they're in church. No, they're pretty handy. Just hold your phone there, and you get to go to the website. <laughs> Amen. Uh, I want to have you open it up Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. This is just a real simple message today. We're continuing to look at the events that transpired that are written down in the scripture after the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to end up over in John chapter 21 and talking about Peter. Uh, but I want to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The title of the message is, Do You Love Me More Than These? The question that Jesus asked of Peter. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll read verses 9 uh, through 18. And let me begin by reading verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 9, it says, for I do not wish to seem, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, he says, I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word today. I thank you for the scripture. I pray, Lord, that you would draw us closer to your word. Lord, I pray that we would just be people that actually read the Bible uh, every day of our lives and that we make your word the first place in our lives and we listen to what you speak to us, Lord, and we obey your word in our lives because that's really given to us and you speak to us in our lives because you desire for us to be happy. You desire for us to be blessed in this life, Lord. And I pray that you would adjust our understanding of ourselves that you would dispel all self-deception, Lord, and the things that we lie to ourselves about, just like you did with Peter, and that you would make us alive by your Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray. Just reveal things to us by your word in simplicity and in truth this morning. We open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this passage of Scripture we're going to look at here in the beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about this lack of understanding that people have and how they deceive themselves. And I, I want to guarantee you this morning that every one of us really know well how to deceive ourselves. Um, I'm always doing this, and it never comes out right in English as it would in Russian, but in Russian there's a really famous quote from a famous poet that said, you don't need to deceive me because I'm already really good at self-deception. And we know how to deceive ourselves, but the problem with self-deception is we don't always know when we're deceived until something comes along and gives us this slap in the face and suddenly we wake up and think, why have I been thinking like that for years? It's absolutely, completely wrong. And it's like this moment of revival and revelation comes to us and we see things in a different way. You know, in the scripture, it actually says in the Proverbs that if a, if a uh, friend uh, punches you in the face, that's just my paraphrase of it, that his punch is more faithful to you than a kiss 
from an enemy. That it's better to be rebuked by someone who actually loves you. And I'm not telling you start rebuking everybody today, please. But I'm saying if somebody really loves you and cares about you, uh, and they give you a rebuke, they check you on something, you might want to think seriously about that. They might be wrong. You know, they might not understand exactly, but don't just suddenly get your feelings hurt. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you because that person actually cares for you. Well, I promise you, if you read the Bible and you listen to what God says about your life, there's going to be some rebukes in there, right? In the sense of very healthy discipline for our lives to help us to understand ourselves. So Paul's going to be talking about that to the Corinthians here. And I just want to draw your attention to some simple things here. So Paul writes letters. We have a lot of them in the Bible. And uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't write himself. He has a scribe who writes for him. And he dictates these letters to him. And this, what we have in the, in the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. It, it's God's, God's word. Uh, the reason he doesn't write himself isn't because uh, he was not an educated person. But back then, to write a letter, that was a whole job in and of itself. It was, it was a profession. You had to know how to do that. It wasn't so simple uh, as, as it is uh, today. Uh, we have some places in his letters where he does sign it himself or write with his own hand, and he talks about, about that also. But he writes these letters, and the letters are very powerful. They're very powerful to this day. They were so powerful that in one place, Peter talks about the letters that Paul writes and says that there are things in there that are difficult to understand for people who don't listen to the Holy Spirit because they're very deep and they're very strong. But apparently... For the Corinthians, when Paul came to preach there, they thought he was pretty weak in his outward appearance. That his outward appearance was not impressive. Okay, uh, History tells us, tradition, we don't really know this, but uh, tradition tells us that Paul was a really short guy. He kind of had a crooked back. You know that he endured persecution after persecution. He had been stoned to death. And then God raises him up from the dead. You know, he'd been beaten, he'd been lashed, he'd been shipwrecked, he'd been attacked by wild beasts. He went through all of these things in life that tend to wear on the human body. And so it's very likely that he had scars, you know, that he was kind of hunched over, they say. They had a very Jewish nose. I mean, this guy was very Jewish looking, a crook nose, they say, uh, in history, in tradition. And again, we don't know what it was. But we know that to the Corinthians, he was not impressive. And that his speech, uh, for them, it, it, it just sounded like somebody that did not speak Greek very well. Because they were Greeks of all Greeks, and this was really important to them. But listen to what Paul says. I, the reason I'm telling you that, I want you to try to identify yourself with Paul. Okay? Try to identify yourself with him, because as we go through life, we hear a lot of things that tend to lower our self-esteem, right? <laughs> in fact, uh, everything in our world is designed to lower us, our self-esteem uh, so that we'll spend money on trying to make ourselves better and look like the person on TV or something like that or in Instagram or wherever it is. Um, so he says, I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. And then he says, for they say... His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence or his personal appearance is unimpressive, and his speech is contemptible. So notice these words, they say. 
Paul says, this is what they say about me. But what they say about me, it means nothing to me. That's what we're going to read here. And that's really important for us. What they say is not important. Being popular with the world or being like people want you to be is not important. What's important is what God says, not what they say. So look at verse 11. It says, let such a person, anybody that's in the they say crowd, consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Paul's talking about personal integrity here. What I write in letters is who I am in reality. I practice what I preach. He's talking about his own personal integrity, which is a theme that runs throughout Scripture, and sometimes we don't notice it. Job talks a lot about it, his own personal integrity, his own righteousness before God, and he stands firm in that integrity. And God actually vindicates him in the end. Paul is saying that the one thing that matters to me is not what they say. What matters to me is that I want to be and try to be, strive to be, and am a man of my word. Personal and spiritual integrity. Whether I'm absent or whether I'm present, I'm the same. Whether you see me or I'm in my room all by myself, I'm the same Paul. What you see in me, that's what you actually get. Whether you like it or not, it is my personal integrity. Whether it's in letter or it's in deeds. And he says, not just I, but he says we, me and my ministry team. We do not change. So look at verse 12, and we'll read 12 through 18. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you. For we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel of Christ, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere, enlarged even more by you, so as to preach the gospel even to the regions beyond you, and not to boast in what has been accomplished in the sphere of another. But, and then he quotes from the Old Testament scripture, he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. So that's a lot of words. And when you read it, it's one of those passages you need to read over and over again to kind of sink into what Paul's saying here. But it's actually really quite simple. So let me explain it to you. He talks about this lack of understanding that people have when they deceive themselves, when they want to be popular, or at least that's their goal. Now, I don't think anybody wants to be unpopular. That's a trap in and of itself also, where you want to not be liked by people. That's another form of pride. It's just another side of the same prideful coin. But when a person makes it his goal to be pleasing to other people, then we call that person a man pleaser. 
And it's a very unhappy position to be in in life because you never do please people, do you? And as soon as you please them, they change their standard and you gotta change your, your actions to please them again. So popularity, uh, measuring yourself by comparison with un- other people, it's a, it's a lack of understanding. It's foolishness is what Paul is saying. And when we measure ourselves by comparing ourselves with other people, don't raise your hand for this, but how many of you compare yourself with other people on a daily basis? Probably all of us do, <laughs> or at least some we compare ourselves. You know, we w- want to live up to the standard of other people. We don't want to look like idiots to other people. We want to fit in somehow. We want to be comfortable. But when we compare ourselves with other people, um, you know, it can be as simple as telling ourselves uh, the kind of things that kids in a family always say to their parents, well, at least I'm not as bad as he is, or at least I didn't do what she did, right? It's, it's how we compare ourselves to other people, and we comfort ourselves to say we're okay because we're better than that person. You understand? It can come in many different forms. But what Paul says is that when you do that, you have a, you have a, a, a very strong lack of understanding. You don't know who you are. And you open yourself up to a false pride and a false sense of security, which sets you up to fall in the end. Because pride goes before a fall. And before the fall, all along the way, you're miserable on the inside because you have this disharmony where you're pretending like you're somebody, your ministry is performance-based, and you're pretending like you're somebody that you're not really on the inside. And you carry this guilt on the inside because of the way you're pretending, but you can't take the mask off and just be yourself because you're in a church and in a town with everybody else who's pretending, and if you take your mask off, they're just going to attack you like, like, like wolves. And you don't dare be honest with other people, and so you just keep the thing going all the time. And Paul says, I got, I got off of that merry-go-round a long time ago. I just am who I am. You, what you see with me is what you get. And, and that integrity brings this harmony to me on the inside. It gives me this peace with God. There's no more duplicity, no more inner conflict, no more misery of just pretending like I'm somebody that I'm not. So I want to give you what Paul says here, just four points, and then we're going to move on and see this with Peter, of how to get off that merry-go-round, how to begin to break that cycle in, in our lives and not live as people who are always comparing ourselves with other people. I do actually know some people who really don't live their life comparing themselves to other people. They just are who they are. And I'm telling you, those are the happiest people you ever meet. They're just at peace with themselves. And I'm not talking about having a peace with yourself outside of God, okay? I'm not talking about some self-help thing, some Tony Robbins speech or something like this. That peace with self can only truly come when we have peace with God. But having that peace with God, we need to live, we we need to love ourselves too. Because how can you love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love yourself at all? And in order to love yourself, you need to know yourself. 
And in order to know yourself, you need to be honest with yourself. And I think a big part of what God does in our lives, it, throughout our lives, is causing our eyes to open up and see ourselves as we see ourselves. The Bible says, judge yourself so that you will not be judged, right? And in, in relationship to judging other people, it just says very plainly, you know, judge them not, or you'll be judged by the same measure that you judge them with. So if you want to judge, start by judging yourself, looking on the inside. So here's four things that Paul brings out in this, if you pay attention to what he's saying here, to get free from that lack of understanding. Number one, boast according to the measure of what God is doing in your life. And we don't usually say boast, or I don't anyway, usually I say brag. If you want to brag about something, then brag according to the measure of what God is actually doing in your life. And do not brag about things that are beyond that, things that really aren't true of what God is doing in your life. But here's a little secret. There's nothing wrong with bragging on God because one of the big traps we get into is this, again, false humility, which is really just pride. Well, we're just not going to brag about anything. No, brag about what God's doing in your life. Please be proud of what, I don't know a better word than proud here, be, be proud, boast in what God is doing in your life. You know, I would like to see uh, that, that we are a people who are not ashamed of what God is doing in our lives. And we can be, be honest about it. If you have a skill, if you have an ability, if you know how to do something, and, and you know that that's from God, and you're able to use that to minister to other people, don't hide that under a rock somewhere. Don't bury it in the ground somewhere. Bring it out and wear it with pride. And again, I just don't know a better English word to fit in here because it's how we talk. I'm not talking about the wrong kind of pride. You know, boast in that. But don't boast beyond your measure. Because when you boast beyond your measure, then you've got to live up to those boasts because you already lied about it to everybody and you can't do it. So just boast in what is happening in your life by God. Number two, do not overextend yourself in ministry. And do not underextend yourself in ministry. But work in the sphere that God has given you. You know, you don't need to plant a garden in your neighbor's yard. But plant a garden in your yard. And take pride in that or boast in that. Glory in that because it's for God's glory. So do not overextend yourself. And do not underextend yourself in ministry. If any of you have ever been involved in ministry anywhere, this is a huge temptation that brings you to a place of utter burnout eventually when you're constantly overextending yourself because somebody's got to do it and nobody's doing it and nobody can do it as good as I can do it, so I'm going to have to do it. And, and it's just a trap from the devil, and it's really easy to fall into it. So don't overextend yourself and don't underextend yourself. Number three, and this is really good, Paul talks about planting seed into their lives so that it produces fruit. So plant seed in others that will produce fruit in their lives, and then you will grow together with them. Paul says that we believe that you're going to grow, Corinthians. And when you grow, then we grow with you because you're going to extend your ministry, and that means we get to extend our ministry. If I can raise my children so that they do more and better than I've done in life, that's just, that's just glorious. That's just wonderful. Because they're going to grow, that means I get to join in on that fruit. 
I mean, that's why Jesus said, greater things than these that I do, you will do. Because I go to the Father, and I will send you the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you everywhere. You know, Jesus is not jealous of his miracles. He doesn't hog them, although you can't have my miracles. You can't do this stuff. You can't be involved in this. You're not worthy. No, he wants this to grow. He wants it to go. So plant your seed in other people, and it just takes all the stress away from it in life because you'll see them grow. And then number three, just preach the gospel. Don't focus your energies on preaching something different, but preach the gospel and seek God's approval alone because his is the only opinion that counts. Go with me over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And verse 1. In verse 1 of Galatians 6, we read, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now, you've been Christians, some of you, for a long time. Some of you, not for a very long time. But let's be honest that what Paul writes there in verse 1 of chapter 6 happens far less often than it should. Usually, if somebody who's a Christian is caught in a trespass, something bad happens in their life, they sin, they fail. We just talk about them behind their back. We just kick them, and we put them down, and we push them on out. <laughs> you know, we're going to kick them out of the church, but we're going to stare at them. We're going to wag our tongues about it. We're going to talk about it behind their back all the time. It's human nature, but it's a wrong and a wicked human nature. And he says here to the church in Galatia, that in your church, if someone's caught in a trespass, here's what you should do. You, you need to restore them. And you, when you do it, and as you do it, you need to be looking to yourself because you could just the same fall into that temptation. You could be destroyed just like they have been. So restore them with humility. Restore them with a spirit of love, with gentleness in your heart. And be, be careful about their soul. Care about them. What we're talking about here is pastoral work. Paul's talking about it to the Corinthians. Be shepherds of other people. Pastor them. Help them to grow. Don't compare yourself with other people all the time. And he's saying it to the Galatians also because it's the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. So look to yourselves that you be not tempted. And he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what's the law of Christ? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to fulfill that law, you want to be pleasing to God, then bear somebody else's burden. Bear one another's burdens. For if anyone thinks Listen to it. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That, that, that's almost not nice to write that to us, Paul. But you can get in a place where you think you're something, but you're nothing. Or you can get into a place where you realize, I'm nothing. And that's wonderful, because then God can be something on the inside of me. And he can really use me now. 
because I know that I'm zip, <laughs> that I'm nothing, that I couldn't do anything without him. So if you think you're something when you're nothing, then you've deceived yourself. And he says, but each one must examine his own work. Are you examining your own work today? And then he will have a reason for boasting or for bragging in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. Now, this is a really interesting passage of scripture because in verse 2 it says bear other people's burdens and in verse 5 it says bear your own load. Well, these are actually two different Greek words. In the King James, it's going to have them as the same in, in English and some other translations. But they're actually two different Greek words, and they're, they're, they're important. The first word in verse 2 is the Greek word baros. And it means like a pack, a burden, uh, like a donkey would carry, uh, uh, like a burrow would carry a baros, like a donkey would carry on, 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 its, on its back. And in the context of what Paul is saying, because he's talking about someone caught in a trespass, that a person is overcharged with weight. He's carrying more than he can carry. It's going to break him. It's going to smash his family to pieces. It's going to destroy him if somebody doesn't come along and lend a hand and help him. It's, it's, it's overweight. It's more than he can carry. But in the second uh, place, in verse 5, it's the Greek word fortion. And it means a, uh, uh, a, a wagon load or the freight that's loaded onto a ship. Uh, it's the freight that the ship or the wagon is designed to carry. So what he's saying is get on with carrying your own weight. Don't expect someone else to do what only you can do. And begin to boast in your own work and examine your work. Pay attention to your work. And stop, you know, paying attention to what everybody else is doing. Because as you're copying off of their test paper, you're just going to end up with a worse score than they end up with because they're not going to let you see everything anyway. And if you just do the test yourself, you're going to make a better score than you even imagine that you're going to make. You're ready for this. You can do this. You have the best teacher that anybody has ever had, Jesus Christ. And you are his disciple. You're his pupil. You've been learning. So if he says, sit down now and take this test, that means that Jesus knows you're ready for that test. So take it. Take his test. Do what he's giving you to do. If you make a C, the good thing about Jesus is you can come back and keep working on it. You'll bring it up to a B. You'll bring it up to an A. He's not going to give up on you until you enter into the fullness of his glory, and we're all A-plus students. Because that's the work the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives. But we have to carry our own load. We have to examine our own uh, work. We have to take responsibility for what the, the, the talent and the gift and the callings that God's put in our lives. But then there are those weights and those burdens that fall on a person that he just can't handle by himself. And we need to carry each other's burdens then. We need to lend a hand, offer a shoulder, and help them get through this so that they can carry their own load again. So we don't want to deceive ourselves. We want to see ourselves and know ourselves the way that God knows us. Go with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. 
and verse 1. In Matthew 18, 1, I'm just going to read through some verses here slowly. Uh, it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And this is a little child, you know, like one of those little kids that went over to Children's Church today. He set that little child before them and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted, that's talking about repentance, and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles, and remember the answer is to the question, who's the greatest? Okay? You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as his child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. The Greek for stumbling blocks is where we get our word scandal from. Things that are scandalous. Things that the whole town talks about. Terrible things that we wish we could change and they never would have happened. He says it's inevitable that they're going to come. It's going to happen in the life of every single person. Things that you wish you could take back, that you've said, <laughs> that you've done, that you wish you could change, or maybe they're not even things that you did, but they were done to you, that happened to you. He says, woe to the world, because these things inevitably come. We live in a world that's diseased with sin. And he says, but woe, especially to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Don't be that man. Don't be that person who brings it into the life of others. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Now, hopefully I don't need to tell you this, but Jesus is not speaking literally here. He's speaking metaphorically, which is more powerful than literal speech, actually. Do not go home and cut your hand off. Do not pluck your eyeball out. He's not saying to do this to yourself physically. Maybe somebody needs to go home and throw that thing in the trash. I don't know. Because he's talking about what you're looking at, and he's talking about what you're doing with your hands, because what you're looking at, eventually you will do with your hands. What you're meditating on and thinking on, and you think it's safe and nobody knows about it, someday the things that you are meditating on in secret, they come out into public, don't they? There's some... I, that's, that's why I get really sick of hearing such foul language all the time, just for me personally. And there's some really good movies, that, but they just have to fill them with foul language today. You know, and I get it that that is how people actually talk. But you listen and you listen and you hear these words, you hear these words, and then you get mad and it comes out and you're like, what? I can't believe I just said that. Why? Because it's going in, it's going in, it's going in. And what you're programming into your brain, it's coming out eventually. Okay, so he says, examine yourself, pay attention to yourself, 
And if, the, if, the, if your hand is offending you, cut it off. Get rid of it. Not your literal hand, but stop doing what you're doing then. Some, some, somebody might say, it's my whole job, my whole life. It's just, then quit the job. Well, what will I, how will I eat? Trust God. Go find another job. Put the labor into changing the circumstance so that you can be pleasing to God and not be an offense to other people. Examine yourself. See, it's really interesting that, that people, how self-deceived we can be. And Jesus says, you've got to get radical with this thing. You've got to pluck the eye out or cut the hand off because you're going to find yourself going to hell with two hands and two eyes. And that's no good. Better to be blind and lame, and, but, but making it into the kingdom of God than being cut off completely. So he says in verse 10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That's what it's all about. Everything is about saving that which is lost. Jesus Christ's goal today is to seek out and to save that which is lost. So the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who's on board with Jesus' goal, who's working with him to seek and to save that which is lost. And I can tell you a secret, a business secret, even though I'm not a rich man. But I can tell you, if you want to be successful in anything in life, find a niche where something is lost, it's not working, and get busy fixing it. People will pay you money for that. You'll be successful on the football team or whatever it is you want to do in life. Find what you can do, okay? When I used to play football, uh, you know, I wanted to be like my brother who scored touchdowns all the time. Still does, probably. The greatest uh, athlete I've ever known is my actual own uh, older brother because there's not a sport he could not play. Left-handed, right-handed, anything he wanted to do. Always successful. Wide receiver, quarterback, first baseman, pitcher, everything. And Kevin, the younger brother, nothing. <laughs> but suddenly I realized one year about ninth grade, if I just play offensive line, I can be great at this because you had to learn all these plays. It was all mental, and all you had to do physically was just block. And I was really good at that because God just made me big. So I can just block people, and I can understand things. And, you know, I played football. I played my freshman year in college for a team that was number two in the nation, in the NAIA, not NCAA, but nonetheless a great football team. And I never scored more than two points in my entire football career because I made one safety tackle. I'm not even sure that counts as you scored. Boy, I never scored. I never got handed the ball. I think I picked up a few fumbles and ran a few steps and got tackled. But you know what? I found what I could do. Okay? And life's not about football. That's not even important. It's just some silly little examples that you can look at for what is important in life. Jesus is busy seeking and saving the lost. And he wants us involved in the Father's business. Okay, so now go with me over to John chapter, uh, John chapter 20, and, verse 20 and, and chapter 21. We're going to look at a few verses there. 
before we do, I want to set something up for you about Peter. Look at John 13. John 13. In John 13, verse 36, we read, Simon Peter said to Jesus, said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. He's going to the cross. And Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. So Peter understands that Jesus is talking about his death. Peter understands that he's talking about going to the cross. And he says, I want to follow you right now because I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answers, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Self-deception. Self-deception. When Peter says, I'll lay my life down for you, he really feels it. He really means it. Okay? But he's really wrong about himself. And Jesus knows that. That when push comes to shove, you will not lay down your life for me. You will deny me three times. You will chicken out. And when Peter denied Jesus, the reason he denied Jesus is because he didn't like the discomfort of being uh, uh, not popular. <laughs> it was just people around a campfire, people like that saying, hey, weren't you one of his disciples? You're from Galilee too. And so he lied. He denied it. He denied it with cuss words, too, the Bible tells us. He really got mad about it. He really convinced people that he was not with Jesus, but he was with Jesus. And then look at Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33. Matthew 26, 33. Uh, Jesus, again, is talking about his impending death on the cross and about his resurrection. And then in verse 33, Peter says to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the other disciples said the exact same thing. And it was all a lie. They were deceiving themselves. But Jesus is speaking the truth to them, okay? So this is how strong Peter sees himself to be, but how weak he really is on the inside. This is really important when we come over to chapter 20 and 21. Go over to chapter 20 of John, and we read this verse already, but I'm just going to read it again so you can see this, this big event that happens in verse 22 when Jesus comes to them and he says, peace be with you. We talked about this already it says in verse 22 that when he had said this the peace part he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit and then he talks to them about this pastoral ministry this restoring of other people this preaching of the gospel this seeking and saving that which is lost he says if you forgive the sins of any their sins have been forgiven them and if you retain the sins of any they have been retained so something big happens in the life of peter the holy spirit comes he, he breathes Jesus' breath. Jesus breathes on him and he sucks in the breath of Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He becomes a new creation. And Peter changes. From that moment, it's not all overnight, but little by little, you can read through the book of Acts, Peter is changing all along the way. 
he's not deceived about himself anymore. Because you see, when he's saying that I'm going to die with you, I don't know if he's thinking on the inside, eh, probably I'm not really ready to die, uh, but he isn't actually faced with the danger yet. You don't really know if you're going to be courageous until you're actually faced with that moment of danger, right? And so he thinks something about himself that really isn't true. And this is really important because we think things about ourselves that really aren't true. But we don't know they're not true because we're inside of our own thoughts. So when you're stuck inside your own thoughts, you can't judge yourself because you're just inside your sphere, as Paul says there. And so you don't have anything to compare it to. So you compare yourself to other people, and that's foolishness because they're all stuck inside of their own brains too. You understand? So I go to the Bible. I go to God's Word. And I actually hear what Jesus speaks to me. And I read things like the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is speaking. And I read something about turning the other cheek, you know. And I think, what in the world does that mean? And so I ask somebody, oh, that means you should never take up a weapon and go to war. Somebody else says, no, it doesn't mean that. You should do this. The third person says, no, it doesn't mean that. It means this. Fourth person says, no, it doesn't mean that. It means this. And then you come back to it. You say, none of those people really know what it means. What does it mean, Jesus? And you don't really know until you're actually faced with the situation and that word comes into your life and you actually turn the other cheek. And then you know, oh, that's what it means. Because it's, I'm hearing Jesus in my life. I'm examining my own work. I'm not judging everything by what other people say to me. Because Jesus tells us the truth about ourselves. And the best part of it is that his truth about me is way better than all the things I made up about myself. I promise you, truth is better than fiction. He sees me as greater than I see myself. You know, he says to Peter, you're going to follow me someday because I know the man that you will become. You will be a man who will die for me. But you're not there yet, Peter. And if you think you're there now, you're going to get so deceived. That, you know, if Jesus, I promise you, if Jesus had not said this to Peter, I really think Peter would have ended up just like Judas. He would have just hanged himself. Because he fell into the greatest depths of, this, of, of depression. And he didn't know how he was ever going to... It was the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to him in his life. All the other disciples are looking at him like, You jerk. You just denied Jesus. You denied all of us. You're a complete failure. And you know all the people that were standing around the campfire when he did it, they're all laughing. What a jerk, man. Everybody knows he was with Jesus. That's Peter. And he's sitting there saying he's not with Jesus. And it's a complete lie. So he didn't please anybody. He didn't please himself. Nobody loves a traitor. And Peter's a traitor. And he had one thing going for him. I, I really believe one thing that kept him from killing himself that he remembers, Jesus told me this was going to happen. Jesus told me ahead of time that I'm not ready for this yet. So I'll just hang on and see what's going to happen. Because he said something about me being able to follow him later. Maybe he's still doing something in my life. Because he listened to Jesus. Okay? So, the Holy Spirit comes into him. And we go over to chapter 21. Look at chapter 21. Verse 1. 
After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. They say to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Uh, uh, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, this is John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. It is Yahweh. This is, it is the Lord God. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped, literally he was naked for work. He was just stripped down to his little undies, or he was completely naked out there working on the boat, and threw himself in, into the sea. But, so he swims to Jesus. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, uh, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. So yes, after the resurrection, you do still eat. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, that's a lot, and uh, big ones. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. That was a miracle. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of his disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So what do we see about Peter here? We see that Peter has found a new passion for Jesus. That Peter has found a new strength in himself. It's just the very beginning of it, okay? He's still not as smart as John. Because when that guy on the on the seashore that we already know Jesus raised from the dead because we already just saw him. And he's on the seashore and he says, cast your nets on the other side and you'll catch something. And then they catch 153 huge fish on the other side. I think I would have clued in that's Jesus because he's already done this. But the only one of them that clued into it was John. And John's so quiet in, the, in his gospel. And he says, Peter, it's the Lord. And Peter's like, it's the Lord. I'm going to jump in. Wait, I got to get my coat. I don't want to be naked in front of Jesus. And he dives in. He's swimming through the Sea of Galilee. We also see that Peter is a pretty physically fit guy. He's swimming all the way to Jesus. And then when he gets there, they come in with this hall, and Peter goes over there himself. I just can imagine his, his muscles flexing, the veins on his arms, and he grabs his net with 153 large fish so we're talking about a few hundred pounds of fish and he pulls it into land by himself and he starts counting the fish he's got this new passion for jesus even though he was just at the depths of depression and this is not because peter is crazy it's because the holy spirit has come to live on the inside of him and this is where we're going to end look at what jesus says to him so when they had finished breakfast he lets him finish his breakfast first and Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than all these guys love me? You're always asking this question, who's the greatest? 
You've said to me, you're ready to die for me. You've told me over and over again with various forms of words that you love me more than John loves me, more than James loves me, more than, way more than Thomas loves me. He's doubting Thomas that you're the best Christian around. They weren't called Christians then, but you're the best disciple, that you love me more than any of these. And he says, so, Simon, son of John, notice that he does not call him Peter. I don't know what your mom or dad did when you were really in trouble, but I did not get called Kevy. I got called Kevin Neal. And I know that when you get this formal name thing going, you're in trouble. And he doesn't say to him, Peter, buddy, friend. He says, Simon, son of John. That's his first and his last name. That's the kind of last names they had back then. Simon, son of John. Do you love me more than all these other guys? And Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So this is an interesting play on words in the Greek. Many of you have heard this before, but it's really important. When Jesus asks him the question, there are, there are at least four forms, four different Greek verbs that can be translated as to love. Only two main ones are used in, in the Bible. And when Jesus asks him the question, he uses the Greek verb agapao. It's where we get this agape. That most people have heard that Greek word for love. It's like God's love or whatever. But, but it, used in this context, it's just the general word for do you respect me? Do you love me? You know, it's not lovey-dovey love. It's this respect for another person. It could even be translated as respect. Do you love me? And then Peter says to him, you know that I phileo you that I love you like a friend. He's using a very tender word, Peter is. So Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, you know that I love you, Jesus. I love you like my best friend, Jesus. Okay? And then Peter, Jesus doesn't stop with that. He says to him, then tend my lambs. So what does he say? If you really love me, then get busy seeking and saving that which is lost. If you really love me, then start taking care of people who have fallen into transgressions and help them get back on track in life. Pick somebody else's burden up. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be a pastor. Share your life with other people. You don't have to go very far to find them. They all live in your house. It might be your husband or your wife, the person right next to you. Tend my lambs. Take care of the little children. Love the ones that I love. And so Jesus says to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Again, agapao. And Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So you see the, the question changes. In the first question, he says, do you love me more than these? In the second question, he just says, do you love me? Drops out the more than these. And Peter answers again, you know that I phileo you that I love you as my best friend, that you are my real friend. And then Jesus says the third time, and this is where it gets really interesting, he says to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you love me as your friend? So Jesus changes from the more formal love to the friendly love. And it says about Peter that he was grieved because 
he said to him the third time, do you phileo me? Do you love me as a friend? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. Implied here is I know nothing. He finally calls him Lord. And he says, you are God and I am not. You know everything. I know nothing. You are something. I'm a big zero. But the one thing you do know about me, I mean, Peter gets back in his face and says, because you know everything, you know I phileo you. You know I love you as my friend. And then he says to him, tend my sheep, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Three times Jesus reaffirms Peter. Three times Jesus restores Peter, one for each of Peter's denials. And the word of Jesus being spoken to Peter is working with the Holy Spirit on the inside of Peter. And as you go into Acts, you'll see that Peter becomes this completely different person. So let's end by reading from verse 18. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you, and if you have a King James, you're going to see that this is the singular you. He's not talking to everybody. He's talking to Peter. When you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. You could button up your own pants, Peter, and do whatever you wanted to do. Freedom, right? How many people dream about that? Freedom. Making my own choice. Doing what I want to do. He says, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter died on a cross. He was crucified in Rome as a criminal. For Paul, they cut his head off. They beheaded Paul because he's a Roman citizen, and Roman citizens cannot be crucified. Peter died on a cross. And when he went to the cross, he said, I'm not worthy to die as my Lord died. And requested, and they fulfilled his request, that he be crucified upside down on that cross. When John is writing that gospel, everyone in the Christian world knew this already. It had already happened. He's writing this after that. And he's saying that Jesus told them ahead of time. He told them ahead of time that you're going to follow me into death but you're not ready yet for it. He told them ahead of time that when that death comes, it's going to be a crucifixion. They're going to stretch out your hands and they're going to make you go somewhere that you do not want to go. But when the moment came, Peter was way more than ready because he had listened to what God says about him instead of what people say about him. Because it wasn't important to Peter anymore what they say. What was important to him was what God says. None of us are there yet. If we were, I think we'd already graduate to heaven. So if we're still struggling with this, it's okay. As long as we can at least stop deceiving ourselves about the fact that we are struggling with this. And we need to listen to Jesus. We need to stop overextending ourselves. We need to stop stressing out about everything that doesn't even pertain to our sphere of life and just be experts in our own thing and be happy with it. This is what God's given me. And if I'll be faithful in this little thing, then what happens? You get to be the ruler over much. So if you're faithful in some small job that God's given you, you expect promotion. 
Because promotion comes to people that are faithful. But promotion does not come from people, does not come from man. Promotion comes from the Lord. So when Jesus said this to him, he said to him just two words. And this whole message could be summed up in them. Just follow me. Follow me. Stop following people. Stop following the crowd. Follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. He saw John following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper. And he said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Oh, Peter, you're still comparing yourself to other people? After everything that we've just been through, you're still doing this, Peter? He says, what about this man? And Jesus says to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? What difference does it make to Kevin what God's plan for Jerry's life is? I mean, I love Jerry, so that is important to me. But ultimately, I'm not going to be judged by how good Jerry does. I'm going to be judged by how I do what I do. He says to Peter, what is it to you? If I want this man, if I want John to remain until I come back, what is that to you? And this saying started spreading around uh, 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 amongst the church uh, that John would never die, that the disciple would never die. But John writes, Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but he only said, if I want him to remain, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So you see, even this little simple saying of Jesus, people started getting it all muddled up and confusing it because they were in self-deception, comparing themselves to other people. And he goes on to say, but this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. But these things have been written so that you would believe. So this word has been given to us so that we would know what God thinks about us. I hope you take some encouragement from Peter this morning. Because, you know, I don't know where you are, uh, how, how, how much of you feel yourself a failure with, with God, okay? But if anybody ever failed, it's Peter. But, but God never gives up on us. He never gives up on us. He, he loves us and he cares about us and he sees in us a potential that's kind of scary if you listen to Jesus. Because it puts a really a lot of responsibility on me. It would be much easier for me just to say, I can't do that. I'm too old, or I'm not this, or I'm not that. But if Jesus says, you can do it, and I'm calling you to this, and I'm giving you this talent and this gift, then don't hide it. Don't overextend yourself, but don't underextend yourself. Be it in what God has given you, just like Jesus told his parents when he's 12 years old already. He said to them, did you not know that I must be about my father's business, that I would be in what God, my father, wants me to do? You know, Jesus wasn't really interested in, uh, you know, when we read the life of Jesus, this is hard for Americans to listen to. <laughs> but he really wasn't interested in his own personal freedoms or his rights, was he? He was only interested in doing what the Father has told him to do. So he actually gave up his rights 
and gave up his freedoms and didn't even use all the power that he had so that he could fulfill what the Father wanted him to do. But I will promise you something. When you stop worrying about your rights and stop worrying about your freedoms and start focusing on your responsibility before God and what he's given you to do, life gets so much simpler because this is just the way it is because this is what God has called me to do. And you find the real freedom is in giving your life to Jesus instead of being a slave to sin. Amen? So let's stand together and we have another song, as I understand. Can a worship team come up here? Let's just pray. Father, I thank you for this story of Peter, the stories of Paul, the stories of Thomas, just these people, the Marys, the different ones that we see after your resurrection from the dead. We see the lives of people that were filled with strength, they were filled with courage, they gave up their rights and their freedoms in order to serve you and to fulfill your will in their life. And Lord, I pray that we would lay down our lives because when you say that you came to seek and to save that which was lost, that means that you came to save our lives because our lives were lost. You came to save this generation because it's lost. You came to save these little children because they're lost. And Lord, we want to be a part of what you are doing in our lives today. We want to be a part of what you're doing in this nation, of what you're doing in our families, Lord. We don't want to be people that tear down. We want to be a people that seek out and we save and we build up, that we restore. And for that, Lord, we need to have a clear vision of ourselves. We need to know who we are in you. So, Lord, challenge us with your three questions. Draw us out of ourselves, Lord, so that when we say that we love Jesus, when we say that you're our best friend, when we sing that you love us, that it would be something that's real on the inside of us, Lord. Draw us out from on the inside of ourselves so that we can see ourselves the way you see us, Lord. And we don't have to wear those masks. We don't have to be hypocrites. We can just be ourselves in you, Lord. I pray that you would cause us to grow and you cause us to prosper. Step by step, faith to faith, glory to glory, just like it was with Peter. But let your Holy Spirit on the inside mold us into the people that you've called us to be, Lord, because you are the potter and we are the clay. You are the something and we are the nothing. And you make us something and someone in you. And I thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urringtonvineyardfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.